Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me on today's show is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing all right, uh, considering the fact we're doing this for the second time and the Georgia Bulldogs still lost uh, the, uh, the SEC championship. So, you know, it, it doesn't feel any better saying it the second time. <laughs> yeah, to, to uh, bring listeners behind the curtain a little bit, we are now talking on, on Monday evening, December the 6th. But most of the episode that you're going to hear today was actually recorded yesterday on Sunday as Luke and I were nursing our wounds over Georgia's loss on Saturday. Um, but we came back to record again because literally right when we finished recording yesterday's episode, and, and Luke, I took you back to pick up your car after it was done getting serviced, I got back home and we saw the news that Politico first reported and then the AJC confirmed that David Perdue was going to announce on Monday, today, that he was entering, uh, that he was launching a primary challenge to Governor Kemp uh, to try to wrestle away the Republican nomination for governor from Kemp and be the Republican nominee against likely Stacey Abrams in 2022. Um, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to react to that news. And then the rest of the episode that you're going to hear today is what we recorded yesterday, where we reacted to the news that Stacey Abrams announced last week that she was entering the governor's race and, uh, and what that would mean for, for Democrats' chances and, and what the national environment looks like in 2022 as she launches another bid for governor. And then we're also going to talk about the conclusion of the redistricting session in Atlanta and what the congressional map looks like now that it's out of the legislature and then the prospects for legal challenges to that map. Um, Notably, also after we recorded, uh, on Monday, the Biden administration announced, or not the Biden administration, the Department of Justice announced that they were suing the state of Texas over their maps And so one thing we didn't consider that you won't hear in the conversation, but that is a possibility is not only will individual groups, state level groups sue over Georgia's maps, but it's possible now that the White House and the Department of Justice are in different hands that they could also sue Georgia for those maps as well. And I I would just say, I expect that they will um, probably sue. I, I would be surprised if the DOJ doesn't look at some action in Georgia just because of the big change that we talk about with the sixth and seventh so that that i i will put my put my prediction hat on and say that i expect that to happen yeah so that stuff is coming later but luke give me just your initial reaction to this news that purdue is entering this race it it wasn't a secret it, it, that he was considering it you know he basically left the door wide open but part of me kind of thought he wouldn't actually do it what do you think now that he's formally announced that he's jumping in this race? Well, the first thing I want to ask is like, we talked about this a lot yesterday. Like, did you not think he was going to do it yesterday when we talked about it? Well, as much as he's left the door open, I'm not surprised. But in the reaction that you have seen that we're going to talk about, about how many Republicans are now super pissed off about the situation that they find themselves in, I thought that there would at least be some hesitation to launch that civil war within the party. And maybe actually we should just go ahead and listen to Purdue's message as he launched his campaign. But it's it's clear in his message that he has no qualms about launching this civil war, uh, about picking this fight with Brian Kemp. I'm David Purdue. I'm running for governor to make sure Stacey Abrams is never governor of Georgia. Make no mistake, Abrams will smile lie and cheat to transform Georgia into her radical vision of a state that would look more like California or New York. To fight back, we simply have to be united. Unfortunately, today we are divided and Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger are to blame. Look, I like Brian. This isn't personal. It's simple. He has failed all of us and cannot win in November. Instead of protecting our elections, he caved to Abrams and cost us two Senate seats the Senate majority, and gave Joe Biden free reign. Think about how different it would be today if Kemp had fought Abrams first instead of fighting Trump. Kemp caved before the election, and the country is paying the price today. It's time for a change. If our governor was ever going to fight for us, wouldn't he have done it already? We face an unprecedented onslaught from the woke left in Georgia and across the country. 
We cannot keep giving in and caving in to their demands. We simply must fight back to protect Georgia. My bold vision for our state is very simple. Completely eliminate the state income tax. It's time. Make our cities and states safe again. Take charge of our schools. Put parents in charge, not the woke left. Fight Biden's overreaching mandates like Florida's doing instead of caving to liberals in the city. And let me be very clear. Over my dead body, will we ever give Stacey Abrams control of our elections again? Politicians will say these common sense conservative reforms can't be done. Well, career politicians really can't do. But together we can. Luke, the Democrats are in charge in Washington and it's all Brian Kemp's fault. Uh, never mind that David Perdue was the senator that lost the race against John uh, John Ossoff and uh, helped hand over the U.S. Senate to Democrats and in the woke left, as David Perdue would say. Wow, what a what a claim there by Perdue in his opening shots at Kemp. Yeah, I I think the thing that is the most interesting about this is this is the and I'm I'm trying to not sound super biased with this. And I, I think I've been pretty fair to Purdue and I talked and complimented him about having a really strong, good message in 2014. And so I, I hope I have a little bit of credibility to say that this is like the weakest version of this run message as far as his opening salvo, because what I really thought David Purdue was going to do, especially since he's been considering this for some time was that he was going to run against Kemp, have some like conservative bona fide like policy issues, like at least a couple where he's like, man, Brian Kemp really sucked on, you know, these three or four things. And also, you know, all that election shenanigans wasn't that terrible. Whereas he had his one big policy issue, which, you know, give him credit for that. He threw out a big thing he wanted to do, which is completely eliminate the income tax. And then had culture war red meat on you know we should be more like florida which i've never heard any georgian say that uh so that's definitely you know a great uh you know uh gated community delusional rich dude uh argument of let's make georgia more like florida but then you know 90 percent of this was just like kemp didn't steal the election for trump and he should be punished for that and i just thought that was going to be the subtext and not the prime text uh, of this race and obviously i'm silly <laughs> in retrospect for thinking that but that that was really what i was gonna think and um i i don't know how this plays out because i think it will be very very popular among the republican base but while that's a huge part of a primary a lot another big part of a primary is raising money and you know getting the powerful interesting republican uh, you know, donor class in Atlanta and other places to get behind you. And I think this kind of thing really will just piss them off uh, because uh, it is hard to not see how this message will not just be super, super divisive for the party. And worst of all, for Republicans, bring up the exact issues and climate that made them lose the two Senate seats and the uh, presidency in Georgia. And I, I don't see, I, I see this as a doubling down on the mistake they made in the runoff of pretending like Donald Trump won Georgia because he didn't, that less people in Georgia voted for Donald Trump. And they're just, again, trying to make that smaller piece of the pie, win, you know, be enough to win. And it wasn't. And, well, and it, it'll be and Luke, curious to see. And Luke, that is the specific mistake that cost David Perdue his job. I mean, a lot of people will look back at his, uh, he had a terrible debate against John Ossoff, then he declined to participate in debates after that. Um, but that was still a very winnable runoff for Republicans and their spreading of misinformation related to the election is one of the key reasons that, that he lost his job in that runoff to John Ossoff. And that's what he is being ridiculed about by other Republicans as he announces this bid. But I want to point out something very specific about the way in which he approaches his belief that Kemp failed Donald Trump. I think he said Kemp, if Kemp hadn't spent so much time fighting Donald Trump and had fought Stacey Abrams, Republicans would have retained control of the Senate. Donald Trump would have won Georgia, all that stuff. It's super notable in that video to me that David Perdue says 
Brian Kemp failed Republicans before the election. Not after the election, but before the election. And what he's substantively referencing there is a consent decree agreement that I believe it was actually Secretary of State Raffensperger uh, was party to with the courts over some narrow lawsuit over an election-related provision. But what David Perdue is very transparently doing in this race is he is toying with electoral misinformation. He wants the Trumpers in the Republican primary electorate to believe that if David Perdue had been governor in 2020, he would have called a special session of the legislature and he would have overturned the election results and made sure that Georgia's electoral votes went to Donald Trump. But what he admitted in that video by framing Brian Kemp's betrayal as happening before the election and not after is it's clear that he would not have taken those steps. He doesn't, uh, you know, if you could actually, if you could, <laughs> I like, think you're thinking about this more than they are, but it's a great argument. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> I, love I it. think he's unwilling. I think he is unwilling to actually go out there and say he would have overturned the election, but he wants the Trumpers to believe it. And to me, that's the most transparent picture into this, that he smells blood in the water. He wants the job. He's probably just pissed that he lost to John Ossoff. He's rich. He has nothing else to do. And so he's going to jump into this race, but he's selling a bill of goods to the the Trump base of the Republican party. Yeah. I, I, I think it's interesting because I think, you know, if we're on some other version of earth where David Perdue was governor, uh, yeah, maybe he wouldn't have, maybe he would have done the same thing that Brian Kemp did in that position at that time. But I think the, the more important thing is, is that he's laying out that if he was, if he were to be elected that, and that situation came up again in 2024, that he's just going to appoint Trump, uh, you know, the, the winner of Georgia before the election's even held or something along those lines, because it's one of those things that this election is being run on one issue in a way that I will give you credit, Kyle, you predicted not as much as I did, but I mean, it, the whole race is just about what do you think happened in 2020 and who do you blame? And it's pretty clear that David Perdue blames Brian Kemp for him losing that he's he's setting himself up so that no matter what happens in 2024, unless it's just a blowout win for Trump, that he's going to have to pull every lever that he can to ensure that Trump wins the state of Georgia or whoever the Republican nominee is because he's set up his entire political future on this one question of what will you do when uh, an election goes the way you don't want it, you know, your voters don't want it to. And he's made it clear that he would do whatever it takes to get to the uh, end goal that his voters want. And I think that is just a dangerous thing to be campaigning on. And frankly, is just completely un-American. And I am, I'm not surprised as much as I'm just disappointed um, because I thought Purdue had a little bit more in his quiver than this, but this is just sad, honestly. He should have just stayed in his three, you know, tiered gated community and, you know, gone wind sailing or whatever rich people do. So he also fired the first shots of this civil war within the Republican Party, but Kemp and in his circle are not gonna go out quietly. Um, here's just some uh snippets of a response from uh, Brian Kemp's campaign spokesman, Cody Hall, on uh, Purdue's announcement that he would jump into this race. Uh, Cody said, the man who lost Republicans, the U.S. Senate, and brought the last year of skyrocketing inflation, open borders, runaway government spending, and woke cancel culture upon the American people now wants to lose the governor's office to the national face of the radical left. I guess he's referencing Stacey Abrams there. He said, it must be difficult for David Perdue to see over the gates of his coastal estate, but Joe Biden's dangerous agenda is hitting hardworking Georgians in the wallet. And he says, Purdue's only reason for running is to soothe his own bruised ego because his campaign for the Senate failed to inspire voters at the ballot box twice. Um, there were also other attacks on Purdue from the leadership committee, the fundraising committee for Governor Kemp, um, which highlighted a lot of criticisms that Democrats have made of David Purdue, that he outsourced jobs, uh, that he was investigated related to some of his stock activities uh, near the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, these were things that we talked about uh, last year during his race against John Ossoff. How 
brutal do you think that this fight in this primary is going to be? I, I think it is going to be no holds barred, just in brutal, because it, it probably would have been either way. But since Purdue has just gone, you know, few, full bore loyalty test to Trump route, it's just there's nothing for them to talk about except the really nasty cultural issues. Because you know, if <laughs> you know, if Purdue was just like. You said you were going to raise teachers' salaries and you couldn't find a way to do it. And, you know, like, is that, that's not going to be a single conversation on the stump. It's going to be entirely, you know, what did you do about the election nonsense in 2020? And, you know, Kemp, and I, it will be really interesting for Kemp to have to attack someone from his right because I think it's pretty clear that this will be the first time in his career that he's ever had to do that. And so I, I'm just very curious to see how he how comfortable he is doing it, because the thing that he's been doing ever since he, you know, stood up for election integrity for one time in his life uh, has been running away from that position as hard as he possibly could. But that's just not going to work for him anymore, because if David Perdue is up here saying Brian Kemp failed us on the one question that matters, and that was ensuring that Donald Trump won in 2020, and he failed to do that, the thing that he can't do is say that, well, look at all these liberal election laws that I've passed, and blah, blah, blah. It's just giving in to the argument. And so he's going to have to find something to attack Perdue on, That, and I don't know at the moment what it will be. I'm sure... Um, They'll think of something, but at, at this point, you know, a lot of it has been Peggy. And, and one thing I, I just wanted to, to point out, the pre-announcement line from Kemp that I kept seeing that I thought was so weak and just so flat-footed for them, and they're going to need to get something better than this, which was, well, David Perdue promised me he wasn't going to run against me. <laughs> and it's just like, who gives a fuck? Pardon my French. But it's like, who cares? Like, who cares that he said he wasn't going to run David against Purdue you? David Perdue doesn't care. Yeah, like, like, I'm sorry your feelings are hurt, Brian, but, like, yeah, I, I did I did really appreciate that, you know, Purdue started his act with, like, I don't, I don't dislike Brian, but, and now, you know, two minutes of why he's horrible. Um, so. So, yeah. Um, so let me, let me follow up here to, to add a little bit to how brutal this is going to be, because. So Purdue actually announced on Monday morning, he did not, he got a statement from Donald Trump, uh, I think just sort of generally praising him, but not outright endorsing him um, either Sunday evening or Monday morning. But now by Monday evening, when we're recording now, about 30 minutes ago, Trump did release a statement formally endorsing Purdue in this race. Um, and here's some a little bit of what that statement says, first of all, Stacey Abrams has a new nickname from Donald Trump in this statement. He calls her Stacey the hoax Abrams. We'll see if that one sticks. But tightly coordinated messaging here between the statement from Donald Trump and what was said in Purdue's ad. Trump's statement says that Brian Kemp has failed Georgia. He, he caved to Stacey Abrams again before the 2020 election and allowed massive election fraud to take place. The signing of the Stacey Abrams back consent decree, so stupidly giving her and the Democrats everything they wanted, was a monumental mistake, not only for Georgia, but also for our nation. I'd love to ask Trump to actually explain what was in the consent decree. But anyways, he goes on to say that Kemp has been a very weak governor and that the MAGA base will not vote for him. Um, he also says we need strong leaders who will fight and the time is running out. David Perdue will eliminate the income tax. Again, does Trump really know anything about the tax structure in Georgia. He will eliminate the income tax, secure elections, defend the, the Second Amendment, support our great farmers, get crime in Atlanta and other places under control. Um, really tight messaging there. He also says that David Perdue and Herschel Walker will make an unstoppable team for Georgia, putting Herschel Walker basically in the position to have to join the Trump slate in backing David Perdue and eschewing uh, Brian Kemp, which to date, uh, Herschel Walker has not taken aside, though he has notably not backed Kemp to this point. So yeah, the fireworks are coming. Pop your popcorn, folks. Yeah, well, the only thing I'll, I'll say on that, and then I think we should probably, you know, 
go back to the past and talk before we knew all these horrible things we know now just discussed is i i'm sure herschel walker will not be out there every day on the trail saying that you know what we need to do is elect me and elect david purdue i mean maybe he will actually i don't know but the thing i will say is i think there's not a whole lot of danger for him to do that because there is not a viable alternative to him in this race i'm you know i'm sorry lathan sadler (laughs) all these other people who are not going to be the republican nominee because i actually just to stop you on that point i wonder now that you have a trump slate coalesce top to bottom in the most high profile races. Is there a possibility that you have kind of an anti-Trump slate? Um, Cause Raffensperger hasn't been shy about critiquing Trump. I, you know, I think in some ways Kemp's best chance is to actually try to wrestle away a bare majority of the primary electorate from Trump. And so he may become more critical of Trump. Um, and so I, it actually, I think if we're going to have sort of an all out, brutal civil war there actually is a spot to fill on the brian kemp brad raffensperger side of things in the i think you're right the thing i will say and you know we get into this in in a moment because we've already had this conversation but it's just the democratic bench is very small and there's a reason why i'm very excited about Raphael warnock and stacey abrams being a ticket uh, that I get into in a minute, but the thing I also think is true is there was no one else for Democrats in Georgia who could run for governor and marshal the resources that they need to to actually win this race this late in the game besides Abrams. And I think that's also true for Republicans. There's not a whole lot of like anti-Trump people who credibly could win. Uh, in this environment, I, I don't know who they could throw up against Herschel Walker and 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 beat in this primary because of the dynamics of the Republican electorate right now. Because the problem is, is anybody else who would get in would be fighting Gary Black and all these other small figures, and and they're just too divided. Whereas Kemp provides a really good opportunity since he is one the incumbent but two like kemp is very popular he has a lot of friends he has a lot of people who worked really hard to get him elected and like those people are investigating him both for i'm sure very legitimate nothing wrong with personal reasons but also you know you like to be close to the person in power and you know what kemp's gonna do and you've worked with him you want to stick with him and not let uh purdue uh, uh, take that from you and so you know the battle lines are going to be much more easy to draw there and everyone can rally around kemp and as we talked about a lot of the professional political folks are very upset about this move because they think it's going to make it harder to beat abrams and so kemp has a lot of natural advantages that no other person could get uh running for that second seat except you know ironically maybe david purdue could have gotten those things uh if he had taken a different approach but he for some reason wants to run for governor and he's using i think this situation to his advantage which he's been pretty good at in his political career so it'll be fun to watch yeah i mean somewhat ironically uh you know purdue has organized his campaign around brian kemp can't beat stacy abrams there was a lot of uh concern early in this race about can Herschel Walker actually beat Raphael Warnock. Um, so, and even more ironically, uh, David Perdue couldn't beat John Ossoff, who is not no offense, John, I love you, but you're not the Stacey Abrams national figure who is super popular and gets asked on all the talk shows and podcasts and writes romance novels that are highly popular, you know? So it's like David Perdue could not beat boring white dude from atlanta and he's going to beat stacy abrams who is a national rock star okay yeah <laughs> stacy abrams also pretty good at debating which uh purdue right already which showed purdue doesn't handle. like to do <laughs> i wonder if he's gonna debate kim <laughs> oh yeah we'll see it'll be fun yeah, that one's coming all right let's move on to uh stacy abrams and her entrance in the governor's race we are going back to the future or yeah forward to the past <laughs> 
Yeah, we have lots of politics to discuss today, but I was going to give you a chance to get out any feelings you had about last night's game because we're recording on Sunday morning following the SEC championship game where Georgia yet again blew a lead, although it was only a 10-point lead early in the first quarter. They blew a lead. They let Alabama beat us again. We're probably going to the playoff, but maybe the worst part of that about that is we might have to see Alabama again. Yeah, we're, we'll find out during the show if we go to the playoffs or not. So, you know, there's some uh, suspense for us, but no suspense for you because if you're listening to this, you already know. But the, um, yeah, yeah uh, kind of funny because I actually think it associates with the uh, political things we're going to be talking about is uh, I think Georgia's uh, – number one failing as a football team is not recognizing the fact that having a superstar quarterback is really important. Uh, and uh, on that note, the superstar quarterback <laughs> of the Georgia Democratic Party has entered the governor's race. So, you know, the Democrats are trying to learn something the Georgia football cannot, which is uh, it's, it's important to have a, a good leader. Stacey Abrams will appreciate that assessment by you, Luke. Let's start with Stacey Abrams entering the governor's race. Um, and I think maybe the easiest place to start is to just start with her ad announcing her bid um, and what message she is focusing on as she enters this race. I've worked a lot of jobs in my life. How are you? I'm good. Absolutely. And for the past four years, Thank you for our daily bread. When the hardest times hit us all, Amen. I've worked to do my part to help families make it through. You go. Paying off medical debt for 68,000 Georgians. Expanding access to vaccines. Bringing supplies to overwhelmed food banks. Lending a hand across our state, especially in rural Georgia. We help finance small businesses trying to stay afloat. And I spoke up for families being left behind. While my jobs have changed, what I know to be true has not. Our values are still strong. No matter where we come from in Georgia or how long we've been here, we believe in this place and our people. Folks who deserve to be seen and heard and have a voice. Because in the end, we are one Georgia. Regardless of the pandemic or the storms, the obstacles in our way or the forces determined to divide us. My job has been to put my head down and keep working toward one Georgia. For that farmer in Peach County, the teacher in Sparta, the mechanic in College Park, for our next generation who should have more than we can imagine. Because opportunity and success in Georgia shouldn't be determined by your zip code, background, or access to power. But if our Georgia is going to move to its next and greatest chapter, we're going to need leadership. I think you'd make a really good governor. All you gotta do is stay tough and stay brave. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> leadership that knows how to do the job. Leadership that doesn't take credit without also taking responsibility. Leadership that understands the true pain folks are feeling and has real plans. That's the job of governor, to fight for one Georgia, our Georgia. And now it's time to get the job done. Coming soon, Luke. That's how that ad ends. Uh, what did you think of the message that she put into her announcement video? It was about what I expected, and that's not a, a negative thing. It's just, you know, uh, if you ask me what was Stacey Abrams going to talk about, it, it would only make sense for her to talk about the work she's been doing since the last time she ran for governor and the problems that uh, persist that she's been trying to address. I think one thing that's been very interesting uh, for Abrams between her two races is just how much she's tried to find ways to address the problems that she talked about in her previous campaign through her nonprofits and, you know, fighting for voting rights, but also, you know, using fair fight, uh, insane fundraising to pay off people's medical debts, you know, which 
you know, healthcare costs was a big part of her campaign last time. I'm sure it'll be a big part of uh, the campaign this time. And so, you know, like finding these interesting ways to kind of be governor in exile uh, that that she's done, I think, uh, have been really interesting and will give her some good ammunition uh, going into this race. Uh, all, all in all, though, I, I think um, it it was the message I expected from her. And as you mentioned at the end, I, I appreciated the coming soon since, as you said at the top, a lot of people, uh, I feel like we're getting really concerned uh, that Abrams might not be running or having second thoughts. I, I really never thought that, uh, but uh, it, it is nice to just have the, the confirmation and the, well, I'll stop there. Yeah, I, I had some of the same takeaways. Um, I also thought... You know, it. I thought it was interesting the way that she pro- approached outreach to rural Georgia in her last campaign, and that was also evident in in some of the name drops that she gives here. You know, talking about the teacher in Sparta, the farmer in Peach County. In some ways, that's actually kind of an interesting way to think about reaching out to the electorate, because to be honest, in those places, there aren't that many Democratic votes. And there like, are Democratic votes there, Kyle. There, there like are. She's not going to win without all of them. That's <laughs> so. true. I mean, she, she would need every last one. I think she would even tell you that. But, you know, if, if you were thinking about the, like, current Democratic coalition, it would be like a billing specialist in Alpharetta is, like, an important part of the Democratic coalition. Because that person was probably voting for Mitt Romney back in 2012 and, and now is probably a decent, decently reliable Republican voter. I mean, a decently reliable Democratic voter. And probably a key voter when it comes to Democrats continuing to make gains in the state. So, I I mean, you know, I think that that makes sense. I mean, the one Georgia message, I think both combats what she says is a divisive Republican leadership and a divisive Republican media machine. And uh, that sort of divisiveness was very evident in, in Governor Kemp's response to Abrams announcing this campaign. Um, and it's also evident that, you know, if she is going to win this time around, it's going to be a very tight race again. And she's going to be facing a probably a worse national political environment in 2022 than she was in 2018. What do you think about how, you know, we're, we're really early here. I mean, we're going to get to Kemp and some of his uh the chances that he may not even be in this race at the end if he gets a primary challenge from David Perdue. But just thinking broadly about the national environment early here, what do you think that means for Stacey Abrams' chances of ultimately coming out victorious this time? I think the national environment is going to be significantly worse, uh, barring some unforeseen change. Because, I mean, one, like just historically speaking, Typically, the president's party has a hard midterm. It is just the rule that that is what happens, and the exceptions are very, very rare, especially for the first midterm. And, you know, with the the troubles that Biden and national Democrats have been having, I don't see anything between now and then that uh, will change those things. And since I've said that, I'm sure that's exactly what will happen, so I look like an idiot. But, um, you know, barring the universe molding uh, to just make me look bad, uh, I, I still think that Democrats are looking at a pretty hard midterm. The thing I find so interesting, though, is I feel like the... Not that Georgia is immune from the national environment by any means, but I feel like the circumstances in Georgia put us in a plausible not a great not a definite but a plausible situation where we could be an exception to some of these rules on election night just because of the fact as i alluded to you know georgia democrats now have their quarter their favorite quarterback back and uh, having stacy abrams but you know the our our uh to call him a backup quarterback is not even fair to you know reverend senator Raphael warnock who is also a rock star in his own right and someone who Abrams is very close to, highly reported that she is one of the people who did the most to recruit him into this race. And so in a, in a really funny way to me, you know, Brian Kemp went into thinking about his reelection with Kelly Loeffler by his side of like building this, <laughs> you know, that. building, because again, like that was like one of the main arguments that this would be him building his like dream team 
duo ticket getting to campaign around the state because you know if we were on earth two or whichever one where kelly loffler won that race that's absolutely what would be happening like her and kemp would have been everywhere together that you know pushing whatever message they thought made sense together and it probably you know that duo might have been effective in in that environment i feel like uh the the kind of campaigning and messaging that loffler would be doing in this environment would be far less hard for her to pull off than doing the like crazy trumper stuff she was doing in an environment where joe biden's the president and she's the sorry she's the republican senator from georgia campaigning for re-election with the republican governor like yeah like that would be easy messaging for her whereas now <laughs> the person who's going to get the benefit of that is stacy abrams because she picked a great candidate whereas brian kemp t- picked a terrible one so i mean i i will be very very surprised if Abrams and Warnock aren't on some, you know, dream team tour together and running as a ticket. Um, you know, may, and I'm not saying they'll do every single appearance together, but I, I you know, I, ex- I expect there'd be a whole hell of a lot of joint appearances between them. And I think that combined with the messaging that you were just talking about, um, I, I think it's going to be a very divisive election for Republicans and getting, giving, abrams the ability to campaign on a hopeful positive message about all this stuff she wants to do with uh you know someone she likes on the at the other part of the ticket with warnock i think it's just a good positive opportunity for democrats that no matter how bad the national environment is that will be a benefit to democrats in the state of having a pretty strong ticket you know all again someone could potentially challenge abrams but i don't think that will happen same with warnock i don't think anyone could challenge them and win so i I, i'm assuming this will be the ticket um but yeah i I think there's very little doubt that that's going to be the ticket i think when you think about the national environment one thing that i'm thinking about is how much can stacy abrams run sort of an accountability campaign against Governor Kemp for the last four years of governance and her criticisms of that governance, Um, you know, particularly as it relates to COVID-19. She did mention COVID-19 and she mentioned this concept of uh, leaders being willing to, to take the credit only if they also take the responsibility. And that feels like a bit of a, a dig at Governor Kemp for his COVID policies and, and how those policies um, impacted people across the state throughout the pandemic. But I, you know, I have a lot of question about whether or not some sort of accountability campaign on COVID is actually going to be effective. I mean, I think, I think one is deserved. I think it is, you know, it is the, I think single greatest governing challenge that the state has had in the past, probably 15 or 20 years was, was responding to COVID-19 and, I think there's a lot of legitimate criticisms of the way the state responded. And Governor Kemp took a very particular tact in his response in this mantra that he said he was protecting lives and livelihoods. Um, But in a lot of ways that the way he acted to protect livelihoods and protect businesses left Georgia much more open than other states. And at times, although now as we speak today, we're actually in kind of a lull in COVID cases while other regions of the country are, are going through spikes. Um, but I, I'm just interested in whether or not there's a lot of accountability on that issue and whether or not she can also bring about any accountability on some of the other issues that Democrats have been talking about for years, like Medicaid expansion and fully funding schools. Because of how nationalized our politics has gotten, if Stacey Abrams can't localize the race, then I think it's going to be really challenging for her message to break through. But if she could set aside Governor Kemp and Republican leadership in the state as this sort of unique force that she will criticize in her campaign, um, if she can't do that, I think it's going to be really tough. And now what well, I'm about to say kind of blurs the joint campaigning with Abrams and Warnock uh, element, but not not too much. Historically speaking, even in the very polarized times we've been, governor's races are not by no means detached from the natural national environment, but they are somewhat separate. And there are, you know, there's plenty of states that, I mean, Massachusetts, I think, is a great example. I mean, Massachusetts is a blue state. Like, it is very, very blue, and it's only 
you know, a really weird fluke where a Republican wins and, you know, the presidency or a Senate race there. Well, but, to expand, so Massachusetts and Vermont, very blue states that have Republican governors. Kentucky and Very Louisiana, popular Republican governors. Yeah. And Kentucky and Louisiana, very Republican states that have Democratic governors. Right. And so it's not impossible. So I think that is a very important starting uh, you know, proposal. The other thing is, too, and I think Abrams's ad does this effectively, is it's holding a referendum on Kemp and the Republican leadership is how she will be successful if she is. And the critical thing about that is having a hopeful vision for Georgia going forward and using the things in the past to show why the future will not be good under the current leadership. Because the way that I think Terry McAuliffe campaigned ineffectively is what Abrams needs to avoid, which is, you know, going through this whole like, oh, Republicans are bad on COVID and when you hate it, if they got elected and things got worse on uh, COVID still, it's like, no, you need to say, say, looking at how Brian Kemp handled COVID and the crises we've had during his four years of leadership or three years at this point, he should not be reelected because of X things in future, because you can't just punish someone for their past performance. That's not, that's not a, a very effective campaigning tool. You have to look forward and say, I want to do all these things. That's where Georgia needs to go. If we stick with this current guy, it's going to be, uh, you know, not a, not a good future for Georgia. And we know this because of how he mishandled these things, not he mishandled these things. So reelect me or, or, or excuse me, elect me. Yeah. So I, I think it's going to be interesting how she approaches that kind of criticism and whether or not she can balance some of her positive vision for the future of the state with how that differentiates her from four more years of, of governor Kemp. Um, you know, I, I mean, she is, I don't think she got enough credit in the last campaign for being kind of an ideas candidate. And uh, in fact, one of the childcare proposals that she had in the last campaign is effectively in the build back better Joe Biden economic plan legislation of capping childcare costs as a percentage of income for people. So it, you know, there is a lot there substantively for her to lay out. Um, but I, I do think some of it depends on whether or not she can break through from a messaging standpoint. And, and Governor Kemp and, and Republicans continue to have a sharp message that builds on what worked for them in Virginia. Um, Governor Kemp's response to Abrams entering the race, he had a, a tweet thread where he said that if Stacey Abrams had been in control, Georgia would have been shut down. Students would have been barred from their classrooms and woke politics would be the law of the land and the lesson plan in our schools. I think that one in particular gets at some of the messaging in Virginia that worked. And then the other the other message that I'm interested in from Governor Kemp is one particularly targeted at Stacey Abrams and her newfound fame. He he also tweeted that Stacey's never ending campaign for power has already hurt Georgia businesses and cost our state millions, all in service of her ultimate ambition of becoming president of the United States. Look. What is your reaction to, to either of those messages, whether or not you think they can stick and, and how effective they could be? One thing that is definitely against Kemp with these messages, and this is going to sound odd, but it's true. He's the governor. And so as the governor, it's a lot harder to criticize the hypothetical of, you know, what if Abrams had been governor? Because while he might be 100% true that that's effectively what would have happened. Voters don't always assume that's right, you know? And so I think I think that's a headwind that Terry McAuliffe faced because he had been governor before and people kind of had a sense for what he was like as governor. So the attacks stuck, especially because he said some really dumb things in that campaign that reinforced it. And so with Abrams, though, she hasn't been governor. And... Uh, you know, she got really close last time and the messaging that she employed got her pretty close. And so I think people, you know, uh, have a, a good sense for her, but not a surety that uh, the way that Kemp is framing these things as absolute truths, it's going to he's going to have to work to convince voters of that because um, they're not going to just naturally understand and agree with those arguments. Now, that being said, the other thing 
two I think will be interesting as this race progresses is, uh, you know, one, one of my friends has a rule in politics that I've adopted too, is whoever's having more fun wins a lot of the time. <laughs> and I feel like this is not going to be a cycle that's going to be fun for Kemp really pretty much no matter how bad the national headwinds are, just how things are going in Georgia in politics, I feel like is just difficult for Kemp because he does not feel super adept to navigating comfortably. He does navigate them, but it always seems very hard <laughs> for him uh, to navigate uh, all the political uh, turmoil of, of the current era. And so I think a lot of what we're going to see from him is this kind of generic Abrams, liberal, woke, bad, you know, uh, word salad that they kind of throw out of just throwing everything against the wall that they can um, to try to make people afraid of what she's going to do. And I think that gets harder and harder um, as long as uh, Senator Warnock stays somewhat popular because I think one of the benefits that um, Republicans have had in Georgia for a long time is that we haven't elected Democrats. And so kind of the other side of what I was just saying is that since now we do have some elected statewide Democrats and Senator Warnock and Senator uh, Ossoff, you know, it, it's harder to demonize them with some independent voters because we, we know what they actually will do or not. So I, I, I think it sort of goes both ways. He's in a hard spot because... With some voters, they now have evidence that Democrats aren't all crazy, like Kemp wants us to think they are. And then for other voters, they, you know, just aren't as willing to accept him characterizing uh, people before they've actually had an opportunity to, you know, make these kinds of decisions. Let's move on here and talk about redistricting. So since we last talked, the redistricting session in Atlanta has ended, and the state house and state senate have passed the congressional map. And we previously talked about the state house and state senate maps, but the the congressional map was done last. And effectively, what happened, what is notable about the almost certain to be finalized congressional map, we'll talk about why it's not totally final here in a minute. But is that. The state's two most competitive congressional districts, the 6th District and the 7th District, saw probably the most drastic changes from their current form to what they will be in 2022. And Republicans effectively decided to cede the 7th Congressional District to Democrats by making that district almost entirely based in Gwinnett County, with a little bit of Fulton thrown in there, making it a very Democratic district. I want to say that the number for Democrats was like Democrat plus 16. Um, but then that also means that in the 6th Congressional District, they drew that dis district up into wider, more rural parts of the northern Atlanta suburbs and exurbs. And that district is estimated to be a Republican plus 24 district. That's the district currently held by Lucy McBath. So that prompted Lucy McBath to decide to, in the next election, leave the 6th District and run in the 7th district, potentially setting up a primary against Carolyn Bordeaux. Now, those districts have gotten a lot of a lot of press, a lot of discussion, and I, they are interesting because they are the most competitive districts in the state, although well, they're also barely the, competitive. I was going to say they're also the most likely to be legally challenged. Yeah, um, but, but one that's gotten less attention that may end up being competitive is the 2nd Congressional District in southwest Georgia, currently held by Democrat Sanford Bishop. Luke, what did uh, the legislature do with that district? So this has been one of the districts that has been the back of Republicans' minds for a long time because, you know, for people outside of Georgia, but maybe even some people in Georgia, if you, you know, show, you know, point out on the map where all the Democrats are, you know, in the congressional districts, like most people would probably not think the second is a Democratic district, but it is because it is, I mean, basically a very large district that goes through a lot of rural Georgia and is on the border with Alabama it does not scream Democratic stronghold by any means. Um, but it's been represented by Sanford Bishop for a pretty long time. And uh, the Republicans are, are, are trying to take it uh, from him. I mean, effectively, what they did is just looking at it um, on a high level, it doesn't seem like it's it's a lot different, but it is. Uh, it, they have taken out uh, Cordell, Georgia, and added uh, Thomasville and Warner Robbins uh, to the district, which 
effectively takes it from being 51% black to 49% black, according to the AJC. And while it does not make it a Republican district, it definitely makes it uh, more competitive. My personal take on this is that Sanford Bishop is really good at winning that district and that as long as he stays there, um, I I doubt that he will lose that district. Um, But I I do think it creates a danger uh, in a post-Sanford Bishop world, uh, which eventually will come uh, for that district, uh, for for another Democrat to win it, just because um, he's had a real strong stranglehold on the the political environment down there from everything I hear from friends in that part of the state. And and he um, definitely doesn't have a obvious heir apparent uh, who would have the same political network that he has. But uh, I, I, I definitely think and know that Republicans are aiming for this district. There's a lot of people running the Republicans national campaign arm on the house level is targeting. This as a seat that they think they can take. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that develops because I, I expect that'll be a real race in a way that hasn't been for a while. Well, and it also intersects with one of the trends that we saw broadly for Democrats in 2020, where they've made a lot of gains among college educated voters of all races, um, but they've also lost ground among non-white, non-college educated voters. And, you know, down there in Southwest Georgia, a place that's a lot more rural, a lot more, I think, probably culturally conservative than other parts of the state. Yeah, without somebody like Sanford Bishop, that, that does become a pretty attractive district for Republicans. Um, now, Sanford Bishop is running again this next time, right? But- yeah, he, he has said that he is running. You know, obviously people can change their minds. But, yeah, everything he said has been pretty unequivocal that he plans on running for re-election. But that, um, you know, that highlights that this is a 50-50 state where Republicans have drawn a congressional map that they likely will win nine of the 14 seats in the next election and over the next few years or over the next few cycles, especially if Sanford Bishop decides to eventually retire, um, they could have a 10-4 advantage again in the congressional delegation in a state that is almost perfectly split between Democrats and Republicans. So that's gerrymandering for you folks. Um, But let's talk here about What's going to happen in the 6th and 7th congressional districts? As we mentioned, McBath is going to leave the 6th, and she is going to run for the Democratic nomination in the 7th congressional district. The current Democratic representative of that district is Carolyn Bordeaux. This sets up an interesting potential primary between these two candidates, notably because Carolyn Bordeaux has sort of made a reputation for herself in Congress as being among the group of moderate members of the House that has pushed to trim the expansiveness of Biden's economic agenda, has sort of postured about uh, centrism and wanting to be moderate, not wanting to be sort of beholden to the left wing of the Democratic Party. She somewhat ironically now finds herself in a more Democratic district where a more progressive Democrat is probably a better representative of that district. It's also a majority minority district. And now Lucy McBath, who has not been really one of these vocal moderate members, has has largely gone along with national Democrats on most issues in Congress um, and is herself a woman of color and a strong advocate on the issue of of, um, gun safety following the murder of her son that that really is kind of the cornerstone of her her political career and the, the message that she brings to politics. Um, this looks like a really attractive district for Lucy McBath to win, um, but it's one that Carolyn Bordeaux currently holds. What do you think of that primary that potentially is shaping up? Well, you know, it is a district that Carolyn Bordeaux holds in number. <laughs> you know, she does, and she does represent a good geographic portion of it, but it's not like this is in, you know, her district exactly as it used to be, and now you know, McBath is just like coming into her exact district. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, it's more uh, Bordeaux's district than McBath's, sure. But I think that doesn't matter as much, especially in 
you know, districts like Atlanta, these Atlanta districts that are geographically pretty close to each other and in the same media market. So it's not like all the uh, people who voted for Bordeaux have no idea who Lucy McBath is. You know, it's like they've seen all her advertisements probably. They've heard about her in the news, you know. We've uh, been stuck in traffic in both of their districts. Right, and yeah, exactly. And, you know, their their neighbors voted for her. So in that sense, it's not like if Sanford Bishop <laughs> was going to run in the seventh or something. Uh, that would be, you know, a, a much bigger difference. And I, I think, like you said, that politically speaking, Macbeth fits that district a lot more. And I think Bordeaux, let's imagine, you know, this was not a redistricting cycle. Like Bordeaux would have had a challenger on the left. I guarantee you she would have. And now would she beat that challenger? Probably, because congressional incumbents usually win. But I think it would have been a real challenge for her and she would have had to actually fight it out. And But... Bore, uh, you know, going against McBath is a whole different story for her, and I, I just don't see her being advantaged in that fight um, for a whole lot of reasons. But I think most of all, while she's by no means in the camp of you know Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema, who feels like an obstructionist, or even if she's not an obstructionist, she's like you never know what she wants. Like Bordeaux's a lot clearer about what her objectives are, and that she, you know, is as you said trying to you know find a moderate path that's reasonable through all this stuff but i just don't think that's the mood of the democratic party right now <laughs> especially not in this new district like people just want to get crap done and not be too worried about the details because it feels like crisis times um and i i just think mcbath will probably trounce her yeah it's like bordeaux's whole strategy would have made a hundred percent complete sense if Rob Woodall was going to come back and try to get that district for the Republicans again. And that Bordeaux didn't right. have any problems on her, her left flank with progressives. But now because that district is deeper blue, it's, you know, it's already attracted McBath. Um, you know, it has the potential to, to elect a much more progressive person um, to that seat. And that in part is actually why I wonder if this primary will happen. Um, you know, McBath has announced that she's running in the seventh. Bordeaux has announced that she will run for re-election. And Bordeaux really quickly came out with a bunch of endorsements, particularly from Gwinnett County officials. Um, Nicole Love Hendrickson, who's the recently elected uh, chairwoman of the Gwinnett County Board of Commissioners, which is a big governing body in Gwinnett County, um, you know, very quickly endorsed Bordeaux for re-election. There were a lot of other uh, state House and state Senate members from Gwinnett County that endorsed Bordeaux for re-election in some ways, those endorsements actually make me wonder if Bordeaux will find a way to decide not to run for re-election. You know, maybe she gets um, a job in the Biden administration or, or um, some other post that she really wants and sort of bows out of this race and, and hands it to Lucy McBath while also demonstrating with these endorsements that she still has a lot of support in Gwinnett County among you know elected officials and, and folks there but in some ways it, it may it may help democrats a little bit to avoid what might be kind of a bitter primary between the two um i don't know luke i think you're of a, a different mindset about whether or not this primary is definitely going to happen or, or maybe not going to happen but i think chances are this primary doesn't actually materialize well this is the first time i've ever heard someone say someone has gotten a bunch of endorsements so it doesn't look like they're going to run <laughs> it's i know it's a weird logic but i mean we'll see i'm not putting any money on it i'll put it that way uh or at least i'm not putting any money on um anyone but mcbath winning this this race yeah i think because the my backwards logic is that because it seems so obvious that mcbath is well positioned to win in this district all of these early endorsements sort of feel like a pat on the back Thank you to Carolyn Bordeaux for for all the work that she's done, but exit stage left, please. Um, I don't know. We'll see. The other sort of key piece to this redistricting conversation is two things. One, that these maps are likely to be challenged in court. Uh, the Democratic elections lawyer, Mark Elias, listed out some states that were likely to be the site of legal challenges following this slate of redistricting sessions and Georgia was at the top of his list. Um, and then related to that, these maps have been passed by 
the state house and the state senate but they have not been signed by governor kemp yet and wsb reported that it was possible that kemp would not sign the legislation putting these maps into effect until after christmas delaying i think the the final sort of implementation of these maps until probably the absolute last minute luke We'll get we'll get to the the Kemp piece here in a second, but what are what is your initial thought about the likelihood of success of a legal challenge to these maps, or what a legal challenge would even look like? Well, the first thing I'd say is the likelihood of a legal challenge is a hundred percent. I I would be unsurprised if you know the the lawyers who do this work have not already just drafted their complaints and they're just waiting for Kemp to sign it to to you know send that off to the court um, because it's I mean it's pretty obvious what the uh, challenge will be now. The question of successful challenge is a, a slightly different one, but I mean, well, some, can you can you lay out sort of what the parameters of what a legal challenge looks like? Yeah, and that's where that's where I was going because the Supreme Court has, in some ways, made these challenges these challenges a lot more straightforward because they have made it pretty clear that the only thing that they will actually consider in the judge in the the um, you know judiciary's purview is racial gerrymanders and um meaning that they will not consider partisan gerrymanders correct or any other arguments really it's you know unless they just blatantly had districts that um had you know significantly less people in them because you know uh, the the districts must be proportional but there's no question that the populations work out in these maps so really the only thing that they'd be challenging them on is that these these districts are racial gerrymanders which uh, basically means that you know they look at uh, at the districts one by one not the entire maps they look at each individual district and if under totality of the circumstances analysis uh whether if minority voters have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to elect candidates of their choice and while i'm not uh, amy yeah there hasn't been enough analysis done of these districts to know for sure if they violate them i i am almost certain that the seventh and sixth will be challenged uh based off of just how they have gone from very competitive districts that i imagine were far more racially diverse than the new maps are to two very solid districts for you know, one for Republicans, one for Democrats, and where one has been packed, which is where you throw a bunch of racial minorities into a single district. Um, and um, I, I just assume there will be a challenge on those grounds. Now, will it be successful or not? Again, I, I, it's honestly just too early to see that just because I have not had uh, access to all that data to, to really get a good idea of just how these maps were made and what the new uh, racial uh, dynamics of them are. But on the surface, I think that looks bad. Now, one thing that is in the benefit for the drawlers of this map is it did not take some insane, you know, drawing of districts. Like if you look at these districts, they don't look ugly. This is not, you know, we're going to take a little piece of Atlanta and we're going to go down uh, Highway you know, 16 or whatever and go to uh, Savannah and then we're going to go to Augusta. You know, it's like it's all compact where they just kind of shifted some stuff. And so they're not going to run into what's, you know, called community of interest problems because these districts are very compact and very continuous and so they're not they're, there's no issues there what it's going to come down to is can the people trying to sue on these maps convince the judge the justices that um because i assume it'll go to the supreme court if it does uh get you know anywhere uh can they convince them that minority voters in the state of georgia now have significantly less opportunity to elect their candidate of choice than they did previously which I would not be surprised if they can make a pretty strong argument on that front, just looking at these districts with what we know now. Now, the other thing that I mentioned here is that Governor Kemp has not signed these maps yet, and it may be until up to the end of December before he actually signs them. What does that have to do with any potential legal challenge to these maps? 
Yeah, I mean, at this point, the only thing I can think of as an explanation for why he hasn't signed these maps is that once he signs them, like I said, they can actually sue on these maps. And so the longer that he takes to do that, the longer it takes for these cases to get in court, get scheduled, have arguments, et cetera, et cetera. And, and fast tracking this legislation or the, these fast tracking these lawsuits is not an easy thing to do um and obviously just gives you less time to work on it and so i I think there are some scheduling considerations um to why he hasn't signed it yet and trying to delay these lawsuits and make them harder to uh get prosecute on the side of the the folks who want to sue the the um, state for these maps all right. Well, with that, I think we are going to leave that there. I, Luke, I just pulled up. I was hoping we would have a resolution by the end of our recording to where Georgia sits in the college football playoff. The selection show has just started. It's on right now, but we're going to finish recording before we know where the dogs end up. You'll know where the dogs end up by the time you hear this podcast, though. Um, so we are going to leave it there. Best of luck to the dogs in the playoff if they get there. Good Lord. Hopefully we don't see Alabama again. Um, and when it comes to the politics stories, we'll be keeping an eye on all of these things as they shape up. We're, we're sprinting to 2022. I mean, Luke, it's December 5th today. We're going to be in the year 2022 in, in just a few weeks here. So election season is back. It never really left, uh, but we will be here to talk about it again soon. So Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. Uh, happy to be here. And uh, as a, a final note, because I, I literally forgot until this moment, uh, you mentioned election seasons. Congra- uh, congratulations to friend of the pod, Jason Dozier, for winning his Atlanta, Atlanta City Council race. Very excited oh, yeah. to have for him. Uh, exciting to have former guests <laughs> on the show win. Uh, so, you know, good, good for him. And uh, ha- yeah, and then it never stops. It never stops. Stacey Abrams could continue that streak of former uh, guests on the pod getting elected if she can win next year all right well we're going to be looking out for elections we'll be back to talk about it again soon y'all take care and we'll talk to you later go dogs go dogs thanks for tuning into peach pod if you liked what you heard subscribe to peach pod on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts we'll be back with another episode next week until then take care y'all